Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Ignite the Flame Audio. If you're just joining us, I would advise that you head on back to episode 1 because we're at least a good portion of the way through the story by now so it's not going to make hardly any sense to you. But if you're still here with us since the first episode, obviously you know how we roll by now. But just to remind you, we basically read a chapter of the story in question, in this case being A Light in the Mist. Then we go into a section known as the origin of ideas, where we discuss those ideas that have come up in the chapter and how they came to be. Then we head on into a section known as tips of the trade, where we give, as it says, tips of the trade to people that are aspiring to be authors themselves. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and kick this episode off. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. A Light in the Mist Chapter 5 Lunderworld After much tedious work and deliberation, we pry the padlock open with our knowledge of lockpicking, although it's much easier when not under inspection. You would best be off, young man. You don't want to see what's inside. It could be dangerous. I suggest, in the hopes to deter him home, and present every criminal having a hostage to subdue, or another life to concern oneself with. Don't worry, sir. I'm long gone. I'll be grounded for months if my mother were to find out. And like a flash of lightning, he was gone. Sprinting down the alley as if pursued. Being of knowledgeable qualities, I allowed James to go first, as his expanse of the underground could prove useful. Jekyll, welcome to my world. One with no one to worry oneself with. No class divisions. The only thing to knock is the smell. But I suppose you would get used to it, after a while. Smiling at James, I light a lamp on the wall, nearby, and it sets off a chain of lanterns, illuminating the entire passageway, and every cobweb glistens as shards of glass from a misplaced window. The wind echoes with a wail of hissing and groans protruding from its darkened caverns. The passage appears untouched since its formation, but the sound of houses echoes above. It must lead under the city, with ropes and pulley systems operating doors and others mounted shut. We are stretched to the pinnacle of our abilities and agility, hopping over boxes and wooden walls like a jackrabbit in spring. What have we let ourselves in for this time, Jekyll? I don't know, old friend but something has to show itself. Fortune favours the bold and what not. I reassure James. With sweat pouring from my brow, as I draw my handkerchief from my pocket, I notice a group of rats travelling toward a light source, not that of the lanterns, but that of daylight. Had we been moving in circles? This passage was so large, who could tell whether it was the entrance or the exit? Voices begin to appear, and shattered conversations ring in our ears as we reveal our presence although strangely enough they do not seem bothered by our entities. There are a range of characters, from thieves to murderers, and even crime lords. How did that young man know of such a place? Perhaps now they were recruiting young ones to poison, but we had better be cautious. After all, we were outnumbered, and with no reinforcement. Well, ready when you are, Jekyll. I know it seems impossible, James, but we've come this far. We can't turn back now. Try to blend in. How ridiculous. No one would accept our daft charade. But for now, it was all I could conceive. My brain had been working overtime since the minute this investigation started, and it was in need of a desperate rest. 
As I walked, gold shimmered with fine, intricate detail. I see all that has been accomplished by these devious minds, with only proof as my restriction. I look into their eyes, stained with the blood of their victims, and the fear of their condemnation one day becoming a reality, to bring their already darkened lives to a more sinister end. A noose end, that is. Aye, don't I know you from somewhere? And that's those inspectors that are after old Bloodsnitch. Are all I hear, but alas no one draws forward. Suddenly our path is closed off, and not in a subtle manner. As we divert our direction, the distance between us and these criminals lessens, their eyes as single flames flickering, urging us to draw near so as to consume with rage and devour, draw, dripping from their maws as rabid dogs fed their last meal. I sense a fight drawing near and turn to James, stating, It's been an honour to serve with you, old friend, looking at our grim future inevitably coming. I close my eyes and pray for deliverance, as the darkness closes in this time to claim our lives in a name which is not justified, but full of vengeance. Large men gather tools from all manner of hiding places, and haul themselves into a flailing mob, cutting off each of our escape routes. The primal nature revealed with the strong suppressing the smaller, weaker ones, death and disease already gripping their clan members with illness and plague, festering and putrefying, and these men wished us harm. Why? As the rain pelts down, the thought of long-term hospitalization beckons, and as the pack of wolves close in, all we can do is hold long enough for us to survive. The first comes to us with barely enough strength to raise his arm, and yet the bat with twisted nails makes bolder a statement, one of violence, even though we ourselves meant no harm. Survival it was, but for how long? And deflecting his fist, he is launched into a trash container, the second swept off his feet by the pandemonium that unfolds, thereafter colliding with the ground head first. Soon the numbers are just too much, and we are overwhelmed by the sheer mass of bodies and fists laying waste to whoever dare stand against it. That voice states again, You dare to contest my strength. And as I recover from the headache, my reflexes are enhanced, as if each punch and kick be slowed to a snail's pace, and I react with raging ferocity, my fist meeting their faces as if to break their skulls like fine china. Was this violence in its purest form, or survival? And as I glance around, I wonder if the same question could be asked of the dim souls around me. Where did this new strength come from? I turn to James and see he is faring well, using weapons of all sorts to counter this barbaric act. However, there is no reasoning with blind people, and the time for talk had passed. We were involved in this now, and somehow we had to survive and beat this continual onslaught. Eventually the numbers grow too much for us to handle, and I receive a vicious blow to the head with some sort of metallic object. As I lay fading, I hear the voice of someone saying, Leave them, you dogs. They've been through enough. Scram, or I'll have your tongues as decorations. Not the nicest of people, I will admit, but he wanted us for something, and for that our lives were spared. I fade. All I seem to do, but my head feels weighted as though pottery, and my brain wishing to escape its confines with all my strength needed to subdue it and bring back into submission. Then, a glimmer of light followed by the words, Release me. As I draw into reality once more, I realize I've been in this situation before, waking up in a strange room, coming to consciousness by some stranger's remedies. Greetings, gents. Name's Arthur Biggins. 
And don't you forget it. You're lucky. I saw you when I did. Or else, you might have ended up worse for wares. We clear the groans from our mouths. I notice my vision is slurred in my right eye. And, as I feel the trophy of my rebellion, it is made clear to me. Well, well, probably your first blackened eye, eh, sir? Or are you accustomed to a fight now and then? Asking as if I enjoyed having my body flogged and kicked around like a dog's possession. It wasn't nice to receive a beating. It reminded me of the past, but it ensured respect in the future and discipline, rather than chaos and disorder. Although in our defence, we were outnumbered ten or fifteen to two, and nobody would have beaten those odds. I mean, we weren't the three hundred Spartans holding off the Persian Empire, and in fairness, they did use weapons to finally subdue us, which were not honouring a proper contest of strength anyway. Jekyll, are we alive? Or is this someone's room in... you know where? remarked James as if scared into submission at the thought of life being taken unfairly from him. No, my friend, we are quite all right. If you wanted us dead, then we would be dead already, would we not? I turn my attention back to Biggins, and acquire a position which allows both to share my vision, with each corner monitoring either one's movement. Yes, you would. But I... Huh. I'm a businessman, and killing you, well... It wouldn't be good for business. No. I see a profit for both of us. If you'd be willing to make a deal. Reaching out his hand in a mocking way, as if for us to hand over our possessions, quickly he withdraws his hand and pours himself a glass of wine. Hmm. Even the bad enjoy the world's desires. Boy, spare us, Biggins. Boy's in it for you, yells James whilst favouring his arm as if wrenched from its socket and twisted during the brawl. Glad you ask, because I have a proposition for you two. I hear talk on the street corners that you're searching for blood snitch. <laughs> well, your search is over, if you bring me a certain document. What kind of document? Half expecting us to swear allegiance to this crime lord and sell our souls in order to obtain the information. It's just how his mind would work. But what difference was it to the society we protect? Each leader wishing to enslave their followers, either with promises of false freedom, dreams that would become nightmares for the betterment of mankind, or perhaps slavery at appealing to the people's good nature and imprisoning them within a contraption of their own making. Taxation and money binding so many by being forced to use it in order to survive. A document ensuring invulnerability against the rope. And... Hang it by the rope. You do that for me, and I'll tell you about Bloodsnitch. It will take time to retrieve that particular document from Scotland Yard. Suddenly, a voice interrupts. Nor will not. As McLean readies his pistol, and the room fills with officers, our conversation must have allowed for them to find their way in without Biggin spotting them. We were told you were down here by young Walter, and came to investigate. It's sure a good thing we didn't all. How glad I was to see McLean, and always at the bright moments when a gun rests at my temple and a voice claims, Give me that document, and I'll release the inspector. Refuse, and I'll have no trouble smothering the wolves in his intellect. My life flashes before my eyes, but it's not past memories. It is gold objects, accreting, just as in the case of the bank manager's room. The words amalgamate yet again. Release me. But from what? 
my position, my past, or something deeper, something dormant, something within. After an abrupt elbow to the sternum, I leap so as to dodge incoming crossfire, and that is just what the police do. Poor Biggins. He didn't stand a chance. Bullets filled his chest, but all that drained from his lifeless course was the blood of the innocent and gullible that stained his very motion. Cries of shock and panic fill the lower quarters. The sound of children fills my head. It is no wonder they grow with such a dark view of the law, if this is what we bring, death. Better will be the day when true justice is served by an infallible judge who will be fair and just, accounting for all evidence and all lives' doings, with sentencing far grander than any of us could ever endure. But despite my safety, we had lost our only lead to bloodsnitch, and perhaps a key witness in the process. However, it just reflects the fact that violence solves nothing, and that conversation and understanding is the key to ensure both parties come away unscathed. What is that persistent glow on the desk of the fallen crime lord? A letter addressed to Biggins, welcoming him to an initiation ceremony to be held at a secret location enclosed below? It went on to detail the proceedings, and finally, that's it. Eureka! What? What is it, Jekyll? No time, James, come. We must return to the royal household immediately. As I rushed to put on my clothing that had been left in an unkempt pile beside our place of recuperation, I hear a click and strain on my wrist. Handcuffs. What is this atrocity? I yell, as if a deer caught in the headlamps of one's motor vehicle. Inspectors, you're both under arrest for the murder of Augustus Pine and the attempted murder of several others in the Bank of London. Was McLean mad as a March hare? How could he betray us like this? and with no evidence to support this ludicrous theory. Where is your proof, McLean? And who put you up to this? Miss Idlewin, perhaps, or maybe Finch, is that it? Well, Sergeant, tell me who. As we walk out of the entrance, at our resistance, we are forced into the vehicle we once knew as a friend. How could this have happened? And we were so close to solving this case. But alas, time intervened, and fate cruelly decided to take a turn for the worse. I can't believe they think it was us, Jekyll. How could we have set ourselves on fire? And Finch even watched for us, and saw that gentleman in the corridor. James tells, as if desperately trying to find an explanation for all of this. And what of Mr. Ilias? Is he still a suspect as well? Answer me, darn you. No. As a matter of fact, he was released earlier today. Dolts assures, with a sadistic smile beginning to inch its way across his face. Worried your stockades will get lonely. James remarks with a sense of disgust and vengeance wanting to be sought after. We had come from one hell and been placed into another. How could we find the light this time? My heart had yet to tell. Confusion surrounds me. How could we have fallen? This must have been preemptive. A devious plot. A grand chess game. And for now it seemed that all the moves favoured the enemy. But they had not counted on one thing. I was a chess player too. And if we were to survive and solve this case, we would have to play a game of light and dark. To come through the darkness, first you must run with it. Everything we had known, everything learnt, all turned to ash, and it seemed only one held the flame, one which had never been seen. A shadow who destroys, takes, devours, deceives, betrays, and yet is never seen. This was the chess player, and by God, I was willing to give him a game he would never forget. McLean, you were with us the entire time. Surely you know we are innocent. I plead to McLean. 
hoping for him to see sense, but alas all had been placed under a spell, as if not to listen to reason once we stated it, and it became abundantly clear we had fallen into a trap. But set by who? Trust me, Jackal. James, I didn't want to do this. All the evidence points to you two. You showing up late, the footprints at the crime scene, your compass at the bank. What compass? The one with no dials. We've found one just like it, but it wasn't a compass. It was a watch, exactly. So we are not guilty. I'm sorry, but evidence doesn't lie. For what it's worth. I hope it's quick. The trial? No. The snap. Death grips my heart for the first time in years and seeing myself prostrated before the gallows is a sight that would shame my family's name for good. I lost my parents at a young age, both killed in a fire with that watch as the only reminder. I had always thought that our family was sought after by dark forces. But why? We had not achieved anything special, nor invented anything. But then there was that book in the study that father never let me see, and the disappearing between afternoons and nightfall. I would see my father, but not in recognition, and then there were always the nightmares with mother to comfort me when the monster crept past my window. So vague, so dark and yet so familiar. Perhaps I would see them again, but I had never envisioned it as this, always on more peaceful terms, hoping to be welcomed at the gates by both my father's hand and saviour's hand. But perhaps it's not for me. We arrive at the police station and are placed into separate chambers, each isolated. I don't approve of being caged like an animal. This is wrong, I exclaim, with the hope, as my last resort, in maintaining my sanity, despite the seemingly real world around me coming to a collapse. Don't worry, Jekyll. We've been in worse situations than this. Remember Julius Canterbury and the gunpowder barrels? You with the... and exploding... the... Do not lose faith, my friend. It's just a bad dream. I assure you, we'll awaken soon enough. Oh, how I wish James to be right. As I rest my head against the bars, both within my mind and surrounding it, how could I, a man of intellect and stature, wealth and knowledge, be portrayed as a criminal, a murderer, an animal? The moon grows full, and as the darkened clouds seep across the starlit sky, constellations reveal themselves, and their stories inspire me to thrive and put an end to this delusion. We would have to clear our names somehow. But how? It would not be easy, but we had to try, lest we end up on the other end of a tightened noose. The night of restlessness soon ends, and dawn draws near. With the new day comes the prospect of freedom. Hope was all we had now. Hope and my lord. Bernard must be worried sick. He cared so much so for my family and myself. He is a member of our family in his own right, and if he were to find out of this, his heart would most likely break. As tears draw from my eyes, a voice bellows, Oi, you're in a stockades, a visitor. But surely he meant the other criminals and not us. Who would know this soon? Huh, who am I trying to fool? It would probably be the talk of the town by now. Two inspectors arrested for their own investigation. But it is for us, and who I see on the other side warms my eyes so that the tears of fear become that of joy. It seems a day of debt cancellation, as the woman from outside the bank leans toward me and indicates with her finger to come closer, as if to whisper something in my ear. Her appearance defined with a lady of class stature, a beautiful scarlet dress with white hemmed sashes, 
ribbons of ivory entwining her hair as radiant serpents, and complexion as flawless as the moon's light. A royal pose adorns her state, and a small parasol, with black and red floral print, used to pivot her position, whether toward or away from our direction. Each step taken builds my hope. Alas, how could she aid us? A woman who has no political power, nor even the right to think for oneself. However, perhaps it was a time for change, and at this stage I was willing to believe the Lord moves in peculiar ways. Hello again, sir. I am Miss Samantha Pine, and I heard about your ordeal from the newspapers this morning. But I do not believe it to be true. I am afraid it seems that way, my dear. Wait, Pine? As in Augustus Pine? I inquire, as if not noticing her features before, and preparing to beat myself in revelation. Yes, I am Augustus' sister, but after a monetary problem I was cut off from the rest of the Pine family, and soon found myself fending on the streets. That explained the accent and well-kept hygiene of an upper-class woman. But what monetary problems? I allowed her to continue, offering support as I listened intently. You will most likely need assistance to secure your names, and I think I know how to partake. Follow my lead. My love! Proclaiming it loud enough for every guard to be discouraged and turn in resentment. The most passionate moment of my life fades. I feel her hand reach to the base of my heart, and an object slithers down my stomach, as if drawn to a halt at my waist, my shirt acting as maintenance of its position, so as to avoid detection. As our lips leave one another, Samantha whispers, You will know what to do, Jackal. I have faith in you. And with that amount of confusion, passion and revelation was over. Once again she was gone, taking my heart piece by piece with her. As I lay on my wooden structure, so-called bed, not fit for a swine, I maneuver the object up to the base of my neck and unravel it from its protective cloth. A sharp piece of flint. But what would I do with this? It wouldn't prove a good lockpick, nor a base weapon, but perhaps inspired to spark an idea? An explosion. But of what? And where would the powder be kept? I spent the rest of that day plotting and conceiving, just in case the judicial system failed us as the law had before plotting and devising with a scaled map, drawn from observation, on the ground, as if a blueprint. The flint would need a source of flame, and from there, escape would need to be concocted, and then hiding until our names were cleared. Years in the making, which required time we did not possess. No. For this we would have to act as a parasite within the body of the law, and use our inside knowledge to defeat this fiend, who had become our tyrant, and destroy these tools, which were now shackles. The truth would prevail from within, and if the chance were given, we could find a way to change from the inside, and perhaps improve the system whilst an achievement. However, freeing us both would prove ever difficult, and James is not a man blessed with lightened steps, although his knowledge of underworld tomfoolery and skullbuggery would most certainly prove useful. We were separated, yes, but as a set of cogs, all we needed was a moment to interlink ideas, and plans would be set in motion. But when will this opportunity arise? Only time would tell. Morning comes again, and we are dragged from our quarters, the toll of the rats now eminent on my legs, and arms riddled in scars and bruising. We are brutally thrown into a large carriage, with its blackened exterior and haunted ones, clambering over its mass like hungry predators, scenting and tasting. When the rider leans over, with face of smoke and eyes ablaze, 
He opens the back of the carriage as though an underworld ferryman, the clattering and screaming of torment echoing between each wall as an asylum for the possessed and stains from when bodies were housed under less than ordinary circumstances. How different things can appear from the inside, much like to await our outcome at the mercy of the judge and jury, with the prospect of death looming overhead like a storm. Jekyll, if they do hang us, what will you do? I don't know, Flint. Ah, that's it. Give the flint to Flint! With astonishment at how well I had conceived her plan in addition to its conduction, do you still have any bullets in your revolver, James? No, Jekyll, they relieved me of all my weapons and ammunition when I was thrown to the stockades. Yes, but your clothing must have residue upon them, will it not? Perhaps. Why do you ask? Well, let's just say I think I know how to escape this little predicament, but we must wait for the opportune moment to strike. Now, I know it seems daft for now, but do you trust me? Trust you? Of course I trust you. Well then, throughout the hearing, I don't want you to say anything, and we must be found guilty for this to work. Are you insane? You'll get yourself killed. No, no, James. Remember to trust me as I have a plan. The journey had never seemed so long before. I scheme and plot the entire trip, going over every conceivable scenario we may be faced with, looking for available materials to aid in our clearance or objects to minimize casualties. We were already falsely accused of murder and arson. We didn't want treason added to the list. The crows gather like a swarm of dark clouds, readying themselves to feast upon our soon-to-be decaying bodies if my plan was to fail. I have faith, and I know that this plan is going to succeed. Despite being surrounded by mile-high piles, as the Aztecs would have witnessed, every sentiment finding a hiding place and fear tightening around our throats, the crows taking organs and carving their signatures on bone as if death's own property, and we to end similar. Not if I could help it. We're almost there, Jekyll. Any regrets? None, my friend. We will live to see many more days. Have hope, my friend. Have hope. I assure James, with the pressure mounting, and knowing that if it fails, I, I mean we, would both die. After several bumps, the ride draws to a stop, and the horses cease to yield power, our coin losing its appeal, and the ferryman preparing for a return trip, and escort more damned souls toward this festering abyss of pain, suffering, and misery. The most tragic part of which was that we had aided in creating it, in order to punish and enslave those we thought beneath us, never thinking that one day it would be us on the opposing side of the class division. We were here, and nothing could prepare us for what was about to take place. Taken. Bound. Bagged. Shunned. Were the banners that hung above our heads as well as murder, arsonist, criminals. But how wrong they were. It was interesting to see the public we had worked so hard to protect turn against us and judge us based on so little evidence and a large amount of corruption. But human nature was to judge a book by its cover and dissociate themselves with certain people because they didn't understand or accept them. How wrong I had been to judge criminals, with no room for change. This was enough to make me repent of my ways and give up sentencing them. As nerves gripped my stomach, and in a manner which sought to vice my innards and no amount of prying would shift it, I feel the mockery of the crowd as we are led like lambs to the slaughter, holding our tongues so as not to fuel the already enraged and untamable roars. Fists fly at us, and food of all kinds pelts our bodies. Why a human should have to endure this, I do not know. I would not even wish this on an animal. 
That was how we were now visualized. As animals. I begin to breathe deeply, in through my nose and out through my mouth, closing my eyes and trusting fully in the officers that led me. I soon realize my mistake. I fall into a puddle, my legs riddled in infection already, and now dirt is added to it as the guard pulls me to his laughter. Consumed by the voices of the innocent, they call to me, Jacko! Jacko! Pity we got away with it, huh, Jacko? I would need to bury deep and draw every inch of courage I had left, for both our sakes. We had to survive this, or else Bloodsnitch would strike, and this time it may change the very course of history, with a monarch killed and neither of us being able to prevent it. As the chain around my neck slackens, I hear the abuse of the crowd, language far more foul than the treatment we had received. Barely able to stand, even if I wanted to talk, I couldn't. The pain was too much, and all I had placed my trust in failed me. But I knew deep down of something that would never fail me, and as I lay at the mercy of the judge and jury alike, I would need his help, more now than ever. Silence in the court, the Honourable Judge Horace A. Shackleton presiding, calls a guard, as if an entrance to the gates of Hades, and each of these screaming voices like souls with a purpose to damn others to eternal punishment, for their crimes, despite the possibility of innocence. Order, order, there shall be order in my court, based on the evidence and witness statements who will remain anonymous for their protection. As he folds a large sum of money betwixt his fingers and tucks it into his symbol of authority, corruption even survives here right in the very heart of what we had worked for, served for so long unaware of the lack of that which is professed. Justice. Has the jury reached a verdict, or shall we hmm, gloss over it? <laughs> Licking his purple extended lips, as if a fat hound with fresh meat to tear into. The cold sweat sets in, and I feel myself fading, the crowd becoming silent and my vision starting to lack. I can hardly hold my head above my knees in the fear of collapse, and all the people can ascertain is their true colours. But the question is who is more ravaged by sickness? Me on the inside aware of my symptoms, or them consumed on the inside unaware of their plague? The violent shivering and chattering of teeth gets the better of me, and I leap back and forth from the ground upward, the guard hoisting me to my feet, not giving me the benefit of rest. James obediently stays silent, even though he could defend our honour, but for that he would receive an unjust beating, and my plan would therefore not be effective. Do the accused have nothing to say on their behalf? No? Well then, I hereby sentence you to hang from the rope until dead. May God have mercy on your souls, although where you two are going, I doubt you'll have the privilege. <laughs> the judge humorously tells, as his gavel is drawn once, twice, thrice, and he leaves, his work done until the next soul is to be sentenced. How could he sleep at night? So corrupt and filled with greed. Men such as he should endure this torture themselves, for they are but wolves in sheep's clothing, and despite their positions, should be treated with the same content we have, the same ill manner and barbarity, thinking themselves above the law, with their curled, powdered wigs, robes of finest material and white gloves, in order to purify their already tainted touch. I gaze hazily at my surroundings, 
with pillars of wood supporting the ceiling as a tree's root, and floors of marble to mock even reflections. The crowd appears so timid and shy on the ground, when the real darkness lies above. How can such blindness be cured? Wooden bunkers of judge and jury, with the crest of the royals present on each, proclaiming liberty and justice for all, all except those with no financial standing, no immediate riches and no class. Haze turns to dark as I am struck to the ground, guards laughing and mocking forthwith, imitating my accent and questioning, Call yourself an officer of the law? Every inch of my being wishing to retaliate, but needing to survive if not for my sake, for James. My body pulses and jerks as if ready to burst, and a tightness of chest takes hold, but a little voice in my head encourages, It's almost over, Jekyll. And once on the other side, you will be stronger than ever before. I fade once again, with visions of solving the case gleaming in my mind, and comprehending all of the evidence in order to lay it to rest. But alas, it is only a vision, and unlike before, it doesn't bring hope. It brings a fate, which could have been. And as I open my eyes, I proclaim to myself it will be again. As I stretch to the limit of my shackles, I long for a doctor to put an end to my suffering, and clear up this infection that continues to eat me alive. I glare out of the window and see horses, carts, stools, and people of all classes conversing, and living their lives despite the terror of others. What the public are unaware of will not hurt them, but I'll be darned if I let Bloodsnitch win this battle. Ask James. When I'm determined, no force on earth will stop me from uncovering the truth and seeing true justice prevail. Jekyll, I never had a family. I always remained alone. I guess that's the burden I bear living so long. But you, you could have had it all. Wealth, family, even some little ones. I'm sorry I took that from you. As I reach out and put my arm over James' shoulder, I say, I would not change it for the world, though the best friend it has ever been my pleasure to know. And we will have all that which has been promised to us. You'll see, old friend. My father has never failed me, and he won't fail me, as long as I live. Your father is gone, Jekyll. Claimed by a thief, you say. Don't you recall? It's the entire reason you became an inspector in the first place. You misunderstand, James. You think that when we die, we cease to exist? No. I believe that he is watching over me, and that includes you as well. I can't tell you that I'm not frightened, because I doubt myself, but it's no longer in my hands. It's in another's. With that knowledge, either way, succeed or fail, we will be free. I wipe the tears from my eyes, recalling memory after memory with James, my father, my mother, and my sisters, before enrolling, and even after. My life in a few images, flashing before me as if a line of photographs. The first of the garden, with its ceramic angels and waterfalls of bronze. The maze twisting and turning so as to confuse even the strongest of navigators. The sun glistens off of the pond, with each carp as a ripple in the mirror, and the paths of stone laid between fields of grass as far as the eye could see. The second flickering more tenaciously with tubes and bottles, bubbles and flame, glassware, and father calling my name. 
the floor covered in various debris, and mother crying for it all to cease. The third so frantic I cannot comprehend it, the glimmers of gold shimmering over objects, not of worth, but of value. That compass, that old grandfather clock, that book father never allowed me to read. Life so full of mystery. As I take one more gasp of air, I hear the doors open, and we are torn from the comfortable areas of stone floor and splintering benches. On your feet, you villainous creatures. I own you now, and let you go when I say you go. Got it? Bloodsnitch was very specific when telling me of you two. Rest assured, there will be witness to your abrupt fall and rise to the crowd's amusement. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a trapdoor mechanism to device and a sturdy framework to build. Make peace between yourselves, but know to come dawn, you'll be nothing but a pair of lowlives dangling in the name of justice, a mouthful of flies and feet as black as a smith's hands. I'll sleep well at night knowing monsters like you two are off the streets and take even greater pleasure in seeing you permanently excluded from this world. Even when the so-called monsters are innocent and are only trying to protect you. I muster the courage to say right before being struck to the ground. Your innocence was forfeited long ago when you murdered that pine person. And unless you want your tongue to match, I would close that mouth of yours or else it will be torn from you. Just like your soon-to-be life. So much for freedom of speech, and being able to voice one's opinion. But I should have known better than to question the guard of this prison I had once called home. To survive, we would have to employ an old saying. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. I see now how my plan could work, from the trapdoor mechanisms to the evasion of the crowd. And with the guard building the mechanism personally, my heart is lifted as his craftsmanship skills probably weren't as good as he claimed, which favoured all the more us. What a strange-looking flower, and how odd that it would grow here of all places. Thus deadly nightshade, Jekyll. <laughs> I would not touch her if I was you, or you may end up in a state of hibernation, if you are lucky. Thank you, James. I had no idea you were so knowledgeable about flora of this kind. A tiger tamer, inspector, and now a botanist. You really are a man of many talents. Yeah, it's a pastime in order to give one a deeper knowledge of our opposition's work. You know, poison and the like. Oh, I see. Well, what do you wish to gain from your experience? Plenty, Jekyll. Not just what poisons could be used, but also treatments for said poisons. What of other uses? How do you mean? Well, can this poison be used to stun if cancelled somewhat? or perhaps minimise with another agent added to it. I suppose, but we would have to test it on something, otherwise they would have actual grounds for murder. Yes, I suppose you're right, James. Well, I'm not partial to animal testing. But how about the guard? <laughs> I silence myself abruptly, and draw near to the flower in question. Its seductive purple allure almost as a lamp unto a moth, tempting me in with whispers, Take of my fruit. But alas, this serpent will not have me today, nor any day, as I was all too aware of consequence. Thankfully, myself and James are drafted into the same cell. The guard's idea, of course. Something about not having enough room. The criminal element had increased dramatically, thanks to gentlemen such as us. But all those years, I never perceived what they would endure. I guess the lesson is one Bernard always states, never judge until first treading their steps. Personally escorted by a pair of mountains, 
their shoulders almost touching each wall, and height to rival that of a building, to our cell, dragged along like trophies of war, trying to find light in a cavern of shadows. Eye contact made, but not a single one genuine, evaluating us both for our possessions and knowledge. I would seek protection, but I fear the guards to be similar in nature, and wouldn't be surprised if they were to leave us to their mercy for entertainment. I look around and observe elements, key to my plan. I had walked these floors before as an inspector, and now that would be our saving grace as criminals. I hope the shipments are similar. Oh yes, a fine selection of meats and ales to keep us going. Oh, I do apologise. Did you want comfort for your wretched lives? Yours is as always. The cook's remedies, excrements and peelings. All full of nutrition for the swine of society. Excellent. I ponder. With that in mind, the first two stages of my plan were in effect. Better still, opportunity arises for further stages. But when would these moments be sought after? Only time would tell. Night falls. We would have to work fast, or be caught at dawn, with only the drum and noose for our efforts. James, are you awake? Of course, Jackal. How could one sleep in times such as these? Sorry, my friend. I try to imagine greater situations when I struggle to see clearly. What's on your mind? Well, my friend, it will not be easy. But I have a way out. I'm listening intently, Jekyll. And as I mark out each stage of the master plan, James is perplexed by its genius, each cog in our minds conceiving plans of escape, regarding all opposition and mastering the art of illusion and falsification. Once the plan is elaborated, we agree that both of us will survive, and if one should perish, the other would seek redemption and the case solved. James uses the flint to spark a controlled fire within the hole of his shackles, feeding it straw gathered from animal feed in the day's carriage ride. As James mashes the nightshade into a pulp of violet and black, it's made apparent that time is of the essence, and each of our lives rested on the outcome. As I ponder, I call on my childhood stories, tales of escape attempts made by seemingly normal people in extraordinary circumstances, their marks left in history with medieval rebellions, and the horse of Troy being used as an elaborate distraction. Now, whilst a magnificent wooden horse is far too time-consuming, the idea is perfect. Here, James. Baking powder and acetic acid. You know what will happen should they come together. Indeed, Jekyll. A right bloody mess. <laughs> exactly. What we need to distract several guards, if I can just deposit enough in my mouth at the time when it's needed. Do not worry, Jekyll. I procured a game of checkers during your excursion with the guard, and won pretty dominantly, I might add. The lad who I defeated promised me a favour in return for silence of his defeat with the others. So, I happily acquiesce, and he has crafted a transfer mechanism to lay sewer water with acetic acid directly from the kitchen. All he has to do is pull a cord, and the acid is released. Uh, upon a signal, of course. Why would he do that? Apparently, the warden built it to prevent rats. It's an easy way to clear the sewers. Just fill the container with poison, and the blotters are as good as dead. Rather ingenious, if you ask me. But how will this lad switch the container with vinegar? Well, that's the charm of it all, Jekyll. It was the cook who I beat. I guess he did not count on me being educated. No, I suppose not, old friend. But then you would be surprised at the minds within this area, I assure you. Recalling my activities after picking the deadly nightshade, I came across a devious mind myself, James. Oh yes, Jekyll. 
indeed. He stated that the warden is a heavy partaker in alcohol and often leaves his keys unguarded and his belt slackened. Anyone could ease them off. Pulling my hands to James' attention and showing prospects of freedom in my grasp. Anyone, eh? Well, not just anyone. With a smile, I secure the keys. This will be for when we lose our bonds at dawn. We dare not risk an escape from within, lest we need a riot to quell our attackers. Well, I may be able to assist there, Jekyll. How so, James? This cook has several debts to be paid by fellow prisoners. I could infer a favour to call them into rioting, which would cause enough distraction for us to escape. The police officers are not going to concern themselves with the likes of us when other, far more dangerous criminals are at large. Indeed, James. But we can only hope that the officers are not harmed in this endeavour. With no assurance of their pacifism, one can't be too careful. I understand, Jekyll. Shall we conceive further the earlier stages of the plan? Yes, I believe we should. Now, how will the baking soda enter the chamber without reacting instantly? Upon the signal, acid will be added to already introduced baking powder throughout the day, and this should cause a delayed effect. With more acid continuously added, it should create enough chaos for us to elude detection. Good. Then all is going to plan. Only, what is the signal? I ask, expecting some rude gesture involving one or more fingers. A simple nod of the head, seen through the kitchen's window. In unison, of course. Well, that was the distraction and failsafe in place. But what of evading the crowd? All you need to do, Jekyll, is get your surplus of baking soda to him, and he'll create a central distraction in the main courtyard, where the crowd will then inadvertently scatter. In that, we should escape unseen. But then, what supersedes that? After careful observations in the past, I am aware of the panel at the centre of the courtyard. Once the ropes are cut, we will hold haste, Jekyll. When the ropes are cut? Yes, my friend. They will be tampered with, as this man with a devious mind operates the facility which fashions the ropes needed for the noose. And you trust him? Do we have much of a choice, my friend? No, I suppose not. Well then, to continue. Once the ropes are cut, we will use the distraction of baking soda and acetic acid to our advantage, and under the mess, we will simply fall down the hole and make our way to a safe house I have had arranged, making sure to seal our exit as we leave, so as to avoid being followed. Indeed. But how will we know where to go from there? Oh, right, me. <laughs> of course. Yes, your knowledge of underground systems will ensure success. Then? To the river from there, my friend, and into the city's sewers. Then, calling upon your expertise once more, I am relying on you to guide us back to London Centre, where our safe location is currently present. Not to add pressure, my friend. No pressure, Jekyll. But why would we need to start a fire? We don't, my friend. We simply need to break these shackles permanently in order for our escape to be quick when the time comes. So why the need for the key? A bargaining tool, my friend. One which people in this place would do anything for. Feeling myself more devious, I quickly assure myself of which side I truly serve. The plan was set, and the mechanisms for our own trapdoor were underway, although it did make me slightly uneasy how fast we had picked up certain habits from the inmates, and we would be in desperate need of cleansing when we reached London, in several ways. I was not aware you knew schematically drawn models, James. There are many things you don't know of me, old friend, but blueprints and mechanisms are my specialty, or at least they were during my earlier days. Have trouble seeing them now? Not as such, Jekyll. 
just enough to see their intention in design. They're finished. Excellent. Now I know that my earlier appointment is two cells directly below us, and with these chains loosed, we now have a means of reaching him with the plans. And the baking soda? Not quite, James. We still do not know where your friend is held up. I mean, the cook is a prisoner, same as us, all. True, Jekyll. We increase our guard, as for some reason more patrol tonight, it seems, than have ever patrolled before. We bury our tools under a loose-fitted tile found in one of the walls. Behind it, an area of lack, where I am assuming the old bench hoist was secured, and a third bed was chained. What did you use to cause the fire, James? My chain, Jekyll. I don't know if it's steel or iron, but it catches a spark. That's what I do know. As James begins to liven his spirits, the opportunity soon approaching, and the promise of freedom lurking in our midst, giving us greater hope with each passing moment. I ponder on how to get this baking powder to the stranger, not knowing a facial recognition or cell letter, as well as being unable to leave ours during the night. But I find myself lost for inspiration. If this failed tomorrow, then all this concept would have been in vain. The price is far too great for that to happen. Ah, oh, here he is. Okay, Jekyll, give me your baking powder reserves. James bears his arm to reveal a plump pigeon with a deformed foot and a patch of missing feathers. Hardly an evening supper. This pigeon belongs to the cook, and it will carry our powder to him, and then all is set for the great escape from this hellhole. Indeed, like the messengers of the Renaissance. I believe so, Jekyll. <laughs> I could feel my upper-class talk returning already. <laughs> all was in motion to succeed and this pigeon would need to be able to make several trips. After hours of diligence, it almost equivocates to a sleepless night. As I struggle to stay awake, my eyes feeling heavier with every blink, I see something on the pigeon's foot, a piece of cloth, and the symbol somewhat familiar, almost resembles that of Biggin's letter. Could this bird belong to the elusive blood snitch? Or was it just a pet with a case of mistaken identity? James continued carving his trouser leg, yielding powder and material at each stroke. James, when you met this stranger, how did he seem to you? Did he have any distinguishing features, or a memorabilia, perhaps? Nothing of a kind. No, Jekyll. Not that I can think of. Hold on one moment. Yeah. Actually, I can recall a silver watch, just like that in a bank manager's room. A calling card. What did you say? A symbol used to give the owner complete control of time with each dial being set forward or back at the press of a button, and if one does not wish to know their time is up, then it can be hidden from them. By removing the dials, the compass, a symbol regarding blood snitch. By grace, Jekyll, your brain's working as suddenly, is it not? Well, we had best get some rest, or else we'll be too tired to run tomorrow, and we will require every ounce of strength left to escape this place. Eh, hey, Jekyll? Jekyll? <laughs> Oh, well. Sleep well, Jekyll. And do not worry. We'll be free. I can feel it. Jekyll. Jekyll. Awake from your slumber and listen. You have been taught to keep me a secret for too long. And know that I only wish to help. Let me guide you and aid you. This blood snitch A voice carries through the bars and repeats itself as if a harmonic choir praising in several tongues, an angelic overtone with a harsh undertone. 
resulting in perfection and haunting at the same time. I agree and surrender to whatever this is, and a voice unlike the first says, Do not do not shun or give as I have bestowed upon you, but use them in your life to better the lives of others you save. That is your purpose, and has always been. I awake, my body covered in gold, flickering and protruding from every inch of me. I feel stronger, my legs completely healed, and my intellect pondering several equations at once. My vision, able to see an ant climbing against a solid granite wall, and sense of smell. The scent of the local bakery's fresh delivery, over a mile away, being drawn to my nose. Whatever happened, it was here to stay for the best, and even better, it had come at just the right time, as it always had. With the revelation of Bloodsnitch as my only restriction, I was ready to face anything that stood against, and bring the murderer to judgment within true justice. Finally, our names would be cleared, and this nightmare would end. As James awakes, I rise from my position, widening my bloodshot eyes and now straining to notice detail. Uh, morning, Jekyll. This is a day in which plan becomes reality, eh, what? Where we are successful. Where we are free. Sorry, perhaps a tad bit too motivational for this time of morning. Do not let me deter you, James. Just try not to bring any unwanted attention. We're still accounting on that homemade concoction of yours to work, so we are far from free. Just yet, my friend. Our hardest endeavour has yet to come, as we rise together, symbolic of our comradeship. We revise the plan one last time, refreshing memories of the devious art that was yet to be staged. The noise picked up, and the echoes of prison doors slamming shut ran through the structure's walls, whilst guards of all shapes and size call us to attention, as if for war against an enemy of considerable strength. Jekyll, I'm really looking forward to getting out, because then we can put this mess behind us and return for a nice cup of tea. <laughs> yes, quite. And I'll be able to have my clean-shaven appearance return to me. One should never lack in personal hygiene, especially when in the quest of attracting the opposites. <laughs> You'll not find any opposites in this place, Jekyll. <laughs> no, I suppose you would not although it will be nice to see one's face again. Giving hope with each word, I am reminded of our great trial which lay before us, and knew that we would have to trust in those wronged by justice, in order for true justice to prevail, and our lives to remain. With our spirits reaching new heights, we ready ourselves for the task at hand, as James holds the gunpowder-laden material, and I signal to its accomplishment. Once again we fall silent, and as the rickety gates open, the sound of drums and trapdoors combined with the thirst of the crowd beckons in this time of judgment. This would be the ultimate test of faith, greater than that I had ever attempted before. But I was ready, and the best part, my enemy was not. We step as if awaiting our demise. I look frantically around, through the holes in my bag, and locate possible allies. But unlike James, I had never had the pleasure of meeting their acquaintance, despite the fact this plan rested solely upon them. My trust would have to be enough for now, as we witnessed several fall to the rope, their necks snapping on impact if they were lucky, and if not, their gargling vomits as their strangulation takes a firm hold, their souls turning as blue as the untamed oceans, and the stench, one of putrefying nature, flies fleeting overhead with the impatience of a persistent feeder, the rotting flesh liberated of all valuable possession, only to burn and be tossed in the heat, 
awaiting a mass burial to the depths as the day drew to a close. It's our turn. And as we wish each other well and all manner of good wills, the drum begins to toll. Thump, 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 thump. My vision enhances and reveals our man in gold. Instead of questioning, I trust and nod for the acid and baking soda to be released. Everything had to be perfect, or else we had come this far for nothing. As the visions of life pass me by, I hold on to one with a manipulative grip, not wanting to surrender it to the other side just yet. The taskmaster, haunted by his black mask, a reflection of death and execution, innocent or guilty, places over our heads the noose which had claimed so many lives already, its gaping maw still stained by the blood of hundreds of victims, their lives as if a presence around our necks. It tightens, and we hear those last footsteps nearing the trapdoor lever, and with that final drumbeat. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. For those of you just joining us, this is the section of the podcast where we take some ideas that have come up in the chapter that's just been read to you, and we discuss what inspired them. And we basically go through pooling where they've come from, uh, various different sources of inspiration from games, films, music and the like. So getting straight into it, there's a few scenes in the book within this particular chapter that, again, it's a reference to a game we were playing. Uh, there's a section in the beginning that references to an underground system with ropes and pulleys and Jekyll lights a lantern, which then lights like a trail of lanterns. This is a direct reference to Assassin's Creed 3. For anyone who's played the Assassin's Creed franchise, you'll know that there's a section in Boston and in New York where you can literally um, explore all these different catacombs, if you will, under the city. And you, you have to go along with a lantern and there's loads of different like ropes and pulley systems that you have to transverse. And basically, we reflected this in the first part of the chapter. And then toward the end uh, of this chapter, there's a lot involved uh, inside the actual prison uh, to do with the escape plans that Jekyll comes up with and James comes up with. And a lot of that also mirrors Assassin's Creed 3 when you find yourself in prison and you have to make uh, certain arrangements with inmates that are already there in order to secure your escape Um secure keys uh, you have to start a fight to get put into a certain area so you can grab hold of a guard and all these different sorts of things and this all sort of was used to inspire certain elements within this chapter so it's just reference to you can use games basically to to influence uh, chapters as we've mentioned in previous episodes the second is childhood stories um, preluding to hide perhaps being generational we start to see in this chapter that Jekyll is aware of his past and he's now starting to contemplate whether there's a connection between the experiences that he's having with Hyde and with his father. He, he, he uh, references his father several times in this chapter. In several flashing memories, he describes the monster that went past his window and in one of the photographs that he describes uh, when he's recalling his memories... He recalls uh, glass vials that are bubbling and boiling. Obviously, this is a direct reference to Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So it starts you thinking whether his father was actually the first who discovered the elixir that was used to bring Hyde forth. 
And that's perhaps where Jekyll actually gets these abilities in the first place. Because if you'll notice, his name is Isaac Jekyll, as opposed to Henry Jekyll, which was obviously the name in the original. So this actually gives the idea that our book is now transforming from what it started in the first instance. It was meant to be a prelogue to the Robert Louis Stevenson story. Throughout the story, it then later changed to now developing after that. So it's now a sequel rather than a prequel. An idea which has been used by several authors, um, you know, in, in one particular case, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, it sort of goes into Jekyll's later life. Um, and obviously we took it one step further where we had basically Henry Jekyll perhaps being the father of our protagonist, you know. So, so it's one of those examples where the idea for a book can change halfway through and you can either decide to go with it and, you know, change the trajectory of the whole story. I think I mentioned this in the previous episode. Or you can decide to stay true to what you had in the first instance. Obviously, in this case, we decided to change the trajectory of the story and I would argue it made it a thousand times better. The third point is there's a particular scene between Jekyll and the lady that he meets outside the bank. Um, and there's a particular sequence that involves a bit of deception uh, and a bit of like a love interest as well. There's a bit of romance involved. Um, and this comes from a combination of two films, as a matter of fact, uh, The Mask and The A-Team. Now, The Mask, there's a scene, it's, it's not really that much of an escape or, or a distraction, in the sense of Cameron Diaz and Jim Carrey, there's just a bit of like um, dynamic between the two of them. Um, nothing comes from it, but basically it causes the guard to sort of, you know, make himself scarce. Um, and this uh, is tied into the psychological effect that it has on us through, uh, through public signs of affection. Because it's been ingrained in our society for hundreds of years, that public affection, signs of public affection, are to be kept behind closed doors. We are now subconsciously disgusted by acts of public affection. That's why when you see couples making out, you automatically want to turn your attention away. You know, um, it's, it's a point that's brought up in uh, Captain America Winter Soldier. Um, I believe Black Widow mentions it to uh, Captain America. Um, not to say that because it's referenced in a film that makes it true, but psychologically speaking, it is... Um, heavily supported. And then the second is the A-Team, uh, the, the remake um, that's got Liam Neeson and I think Bradley Cooper is in it. I think he plays Face. I'm not too sure. But it's a good film. It is a good film. For someone who's watched the entire original series, I think it's a good uh, credit to the series. Um, and there's a scene there, which um, the one in the chapter definitely plays off of, where Face is being escorted away. The A-team are being arrested and they're being put in the back of an armoured truck. And basically, the person, the woman who's been chasing them this entire time, she walks up to Face and basically they have a make-out sesh. And later, what you don't realise is she's actually slipped a key to their cuffs to Face. And um, basically, the rest of the group are like, well, how are we going to get out of this predicament? And Bradley Cooper smiles and he's got the, the key between his teeth. So the whole thing was a distraction. It was a ploy to um, to secure their escape. And I really thought that was a fantastic idea. So obviously we used that in the chapter as far as um, 
Jekyll and Samantha Pine are concerned. The fourth point is this chapter exposes the flaws in the justice system. Now, this is a conversation in itself, but basically the major influence behind this was Wind in the Willows. That's both the book and the film um, restorations. Basically, in all of them, there's a scene where Toad is arrested for speeding and he's brought before uh, the justice and basically the judge turns around and he just condemns him for 18 years for reckless driving and 12 years for bad-mouthing a police officer and he just gives him like this 30-year sentence and it takes like five seconds for him to deduce. He doesn't even go to the jury. He just condemns him. And this is very like reflective of what justice was like in the time. You know, um, court proceedings didn't last half as long as they do now because people just, you know, wanted to get the sentence over and it was sort of done. But it also reflects the fact that a lot of people were falsely incriminated for bringing truths to light that challenged the social norm or something that someone wanted to keep hidden. Now, without going into conspiracy theories and all this sort of stuff, you know, several people through history have been kept silent, so to speak, uh, because they've brought ideas forward that have challenged the social norm. Uh, people like Socrates, obviously he was uh, forced to drink hemlock because he challenged the thoughts of the time, suggesting that things could happen naturally rather than be ordained by the gods. Uh, Galileo uh, was responsible for suggesting that the earth was round. Um, and he had to denounce his theory as per order of the king, otherwise he was going to be executed. The same could be said of Copernicus. He came up with the idea of the heliocentric universe, which is basically where the, the universe revolves around the sun. Well, not the universe, but our branch of the solar system then revolves around the sun and rather than the earth. And this challenged the, the idea of the time, uh, especially the Roman Catholic Church, because they believed that the, you know, universe rotated around the earth because it, um, made better reference to Genesis or something. But basically, he was forced to denounce his theory. And, you know, if we go back earlier, um, the same can be said of Jesus. You know, uh, he came and he challenged the idea of the, the Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders, and he was put to death. You know, he was crucified for it. So regardless of whether you, you know, believe that these people were silenced um, for whatever reason, they were. You know, they, they all had something to say, and it challenged the, the social aspects of the time. We see this when Jekyll and James are brought before the courts, you know, they're not given chance to speak, even though their plan is to remain silent. They're not even given the chance to speak because what they represent is an open-minded approach, which is not what the Victorian world and, you know, even to some degrees, our world now uh, is very hesitant to accept. Um, we're more happy to unite under a banner of intolerance nowadays. Um, but then I believe tolerance is a, silly banner in itself because when you tolerate something that means you put up with it so I, I would sooner be united under a banner of acceptance rather than tolerance but that's for the the world to decide i guess the fifth point is reference to the supernatural now obviously you know you don't have to have a faith to describe the supernatural i mean obviously it helps with us because you know I'm, I'm a christian so i have a, a kinship to the supernatural, you know, I believe in divine intervention and, and the angelic and, and even to some elements, you know, the demonic and all that sort of stuff. You know, I, I believe in that sort of thing. And people believe in ghostly apparitions and, and visitations, you know, and, and some people uh, uh, have the gift of medium and 
you know, they believe they can contact spirits and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's all, uh, it's, it's a fascinating element to life. I, I genuinely am fascinated by the supernatural. And even if you don't, you know, ha- like I said, have a faith yourself, it's still something that's very interesting. You know, it's an interesting dynamic to someone's life. And, you know, not to say that even if you don't have a faith, you can't be interested in the supernatural. Of course you can. You know, you don't have to uh, follow doctrine to believe in the supernatural. You can still have a supernatural. And we portray this uh, in this sequence where Jekyll has a visitation while he's sleeping. He has a visitation from Hyde. And then he has a visitation which is somewhat more supernatural. It's almost like an angelic voice. Uh, that's preceded by a bunch of echoes. That's how I would imagine a supernatural voice to sound. I haven't actually heard a supernatural voice, I must admit. But I have had experiences where you've had a voice that's guided you in a certain direction or has convinced you to do something um, that's changed your life for the better or something like that. You know, a prick of conscience. Uh, you know, it could be... Um, it could be your subconscious. I prefer to think of it as divine intervention, but that's just my opinion. Um, and we see that here, you know, we, we see divine intervention because there's a moment, like I said, that's followed by a load of echoes that says to Jekyll, you know, don't misuse the gifts that I've bestowed upon you. Use them to make people's lives better. You know, this is your purpose and has always been. Now, this was, um, this was in direct, uh, reflection, uh, for a experience that we were going through ourselves. Um, basically, um, it's going to get very deep in this moment. Um, but, you know, I, I feel that it needs to be expressed, not for sympathy, you understand, but, you know, just to show that, you know, people do go through things and you can you can express these things in your books, even if you, you know, feel comfortable about it. Um, there was a moment in our life where basically we had come to the end. We had come to a point where, you know, we we basically had enough and, you know, to, to spare the gory details, basically we were going to, you know, commit suicide. Um, and I had a moment there where I was, I was sat in my chair and, you know, I was, I was seconds away from making the biggest mistake of my life. And I felt something rest on my shoulder. It was almost like a hand. And I, I heard a very audible voice, a very audible voice turn around to me and say, you know, are, are you just going to throw all this away? Everything I've given you, are you going to, are you just going to throw it away? Look how far you've come. And, it then spoke to me and said, if you will devote yourself to me 100%, I will take you places you've never even dreamed of. And I decided to listen to that voice. I decided to get back up out of that chair. And since then, we have become a published author. That's, that's basically when this whole journey started. Um, I've since published four novels successfully. And as you can hear now, I'm a podcast host. I would never have dreamed of this. Now, whether you call it coincidence, I would sooner think of it as divine intervention. It's too perfect to be coincidence. I can't predict the future, but I know this to be true. And this is one of those experiences where I was happy to reflect it in the character of Jekyll because, you know, a lot of people will say I chose my faith because, you know, my parents believed or someone else believed or I just thought I'd just go along with it for me it was a life or death situation and I truly believe in that moment that you know I I met my faith definitely so it's one of those experiences that you have such a conviction for it you know and I hope that everybody who has a faith and doesn't have a faith has that same conviction you know that they are absolutely 100% in themselves they know this is who I am 
is what makes me who I am. And I'm not afraid to express it, even though it might come from a dark place or even though it might come from a really good place. You know, that's freedom of expression, you know, and that's what we see in this chapter. So that about wraps it up for this section. So let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is where we discuss tips of the trade, as it says. Uh, for those of you who are aspiring to be authors yourself, basically covering from the first stages of actually creating an idea all the way up to getting yourself published and everything in between. So today we're following on from the previous episode. We, dis uh, we discussed plot uh, as one of the areas of the actual planning stages. Today we're actually going to discuss characters. Uh, characters is the second part of the planning stage, at least for us. Um, obviously you're more than welcome to, as I've mentioned before, add any areas to your plan if, if you feel that it's relevant. Um, but for the sake of argument, just the way I do it, um, characters is, is the second section. So creating a character uh, is, again, it's a simple uh, concept. It's exactly the same as creating a name for your novel. Um, basically, a character can be anything from a stick person in a kid's book to an actual fully fledged human being that exists, you know. So it can, you know, you, you pretty much got creative control as far as characters are concerned. Uh, the level of description is pretty much up to you. Um, I know that uh, reading novels, specifically in the horror genre, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is not very descriptive. Uh, when he describes characters, he's not very descriptive with anything, to be honest. But I like that vagueness because it allows your imagination to do the rest of the work. Whereas if you take the works of Stephen King, he's like very descriptive. You know, he'll he'll spend several pages describing something, you know, very, very intimately, um, you know, and that's characters, backgrounds, that sort of thing. So you pretty much, again, you have freedom of control basically you can be as descriptive about characters as you want you can use real life aspects to describe characters you know so um if someone's got a particular physical appearance that you want to capture so if someone's got freckles if someone's got flaring nostrils if someone's got uh a particular hairstyle particular hair color their eyes um all these different sorts of things you can use that in the description of your characters and you can pretty much build everything from their their body build to their height uh, to the size of their hands. You can really, there's no limit as to like how much level of description you can go into. But just bear in mind your readers in the sense of how much detail you go into. Because if you do go into a heck of a lot of detail, um, for some people, they love it. You know, like I said, uh, Stephen King has got a multitude of fans. For me personally, I don't enjoy it. I don't like, you know, authors that take ages to describe something that's plain and simple. You know, I, I feel that it's taking you too far away from the story. It doesn't help build context. Uh, but again, that's my personal opinion. I'm sure loads of people would disagree with me. Uh, but I prefer the works of Lovecraft to, to King because it's vague enough that it allows my imagination to run wild. And I love books that do that. Um, but I suppose it depends on your target market. It depends on the readers that are going to be reading your novels. So developing a physical appearance, like I said, uh, it helps to observe people, you know, so you can base a character off your friends, uh, your work colleagues, your family, etc. Uh, and then you can start taking elements of actually building that character. So things like personality quirks. So, for example, 
if you have someone who's uh, using a certain type of dialect, so they're talking to you and they're like, you know what I mean, you know, at the end of every sentence, or they're flicking their hair behind their ear, but it's just the one ear, you know, and they, they keep doing that. Or um, when they're talking, they're very handsy, you know, they're, they're making hand gestures, you know, these sorts of things are what I would call personality quirks, you know, they're, they're what makes that character relatable. So be sure to observe these things. We've mentioned it before, uh, known as people watching. The best thing to do is sort of just walk through a city centre um, or go to a coffee shop or McDonald's or something like that. And just, you know, while you're going about your, your business, just sort of observe people like not, you know, don't make it obvious, but basically just just glimpse at them from the corner of your eye. Listen to their conversations. Um, just see how people interact with one another. And it just helps to sort of create those characters. Uh, it helps for more fluent dialect and all these kind of things. Obviously, in future episodes, we'll discuss dialect in, you know, greater um, detail. But for now, we're just concentrating on how you can make a dialogue specific to a certain character. You know, uh, you can go into things like uh, accents, um, you know, and like I said, personality quirks and all that sort of stuff. But basically, you know, these are the sort of elements, the key elements that you want to start planning for your characters. And then obviously to get down to the actual planning stage, you want to have your characters' names. I would highly recommend uh, just going on Google and type in top 100 names for boys, names for girls uh, of the particular time you're interested in. So if you're doing it in a, a time setting that's like, I don't know, the 1600s, you'll be surprised. They have like top the top 100 names of that time period. It's insane how they do, but they do. Um, and a lot of the names that you would think are quite uh, recent additions, they go back hundreds of years, some of them. So be sure to go onto Google and, and um, you know, type in top 100 names to get inspirations. You're more than welcome to use already existing names. Um, one of the good experiences that I had was I worked in a school for a short time. And obviously, when you walk down the corridors, you see all the name tags. So I started using names from them. You know, I, obviously, I didn't use that specific name because obviously that's identity theft. But well, maybe not. I don't know. Um, I'm sure it has some sort of legislation to it. But basically, you could take an, the first name and then cross it with the last name of another person, you know, just to sort of, you know, make sure that you're not infringing on anyone's personal rights. Um, it's just something to bear in mind. But basically, yeah, when you're naming your character, uh, when you're coming up with the ideas of your characters, it's just all these sorts of things that you can pull your resources uh, to to have them. And then what you would do is once you've created those characters, you would assign them in your story. So you'd have this character is going to be my protagonist. This character is going to be the side interest. So whether it's a partner or whether it's a love interest, something like that, then you would have what's called your antagonist. So someone who's the bad guy, basically, in the story, you would have your characters in between. Obviously, this depends on your genre to um, go into A Light in the Mist. It was basically the characters that were involved in the murder, you know, who were the suspects, who was the victim, who was everybody in between, you know, two sideline characters that basically have one mention. Uh, I, I believe in, in one of the chapters, it might be the one before this one, there's mention to uh, a chief fireman, Radsby. He was literally just a one-off character. He appears once in the story and you never see him again, basically, spoiler alert. But it's one of those characters that you create and you're like, you know, he's pivotal to that moment in the story. Whether he appears again, doesn't really matter, you know. So all these things you can actually start thinking about now when you're going into characters. And obviously, 
like I said before, you can be as descriptive and you can make them as real or as imaginary as you wish. And that's, that's the beauty of creative control, as I've mentioned before. You're all the one completely in control. So that about wraps up this section. And that's the end of episode five. Once again, thank you guys for joining us. It really means a lot to us that you would take over an hour of your time uh, out of your busy schedules to, you know, make us a part of it. Really appreciate that. We'll endeavour to include the links below to anything that's been mentioned uh, in the episode. And just to mention, if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to head on over to another podcast known as Genuine Chit Chat. It's hosted by a friend of mine, Mike Burton. Basically a conversational podcast where no topic is off limits and the conversations normally last about an hour in length, but they cover all sorts of ranges of topics. So if you still believe in the art of conversation and that sounds like the kind of podcast you'd like to check out, be sure to head on over there and we'll include the link below for that one as well. Okay, guys, thank you very much again for tuning in. Hopefully you've got what you've wanted from it. I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you next time.